John Calvin's Reply to the Letter of Cardinal Sadelet, Part 1, by John Calvin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. John Calvin to James Sadelet, Cardinal. Health. In the great abundance of learned men whom our age has produced, your excellent learning and distinguished eloquence, having deservedly procured you a place among the few whom all, who would be thought studious of liberal arts, look up to and revere, it is with great reluctance I bring forward your name before the learned world, and address to you the following expostulation. Nor, indeed, would I have done it, if I had not been dragged into this arena by a strong necessity." for I am not unaware how reprehensible it would be to show any eagerness in attacking a man who has deserved so well of literature, nor how odious I should become to all the learned were they to see me stimulated by passion merely, and not impelled by any just cause, turning my pen against one whom, for his admirable endowments, they, not without good reason, deem worthy of love and honour. I trust, however, that after explaining the nature of my undertaking— I shall not only be exempted from all blame, but there will not be an individual who will not admit that the cause which I have undertaken I could not on any account have abandoned without basely deserting my duty. You lately addressed a letter to the Senate and people of Geneva in which you sounded their inclination as to whether, after having once shaken off the yoke of the Roman pontiff, they would submit to have it again imposed upon them. In that letter, as it was not expedient to wound the feelings of those whose favour you require to gain your cause, you acted the part of a good pleader, for you endeavoured to soothe them by abundance of flattery, in order that you might gain them over to your views. Anything of obloquy and bitterness you directed against those whose exertions had produced the revolt from that tyranny. And here, so help you, you bear down full sail upon those who, under pretense of the gospel, have by wicked arts urged on that city to what you deplore as the subversion of religion and of the church. I, however, Sadelette, profess to be one of those whom with so much enmity you assail and stigmatize. For though religion was already established and the form of the church corrected before I was invited to Geneva, yet having not only approved by my suffrage, but studied as much as in me lay to preserve and confirm what had been done by Virette and Farel, I cannot separate my case from theirs. Still, if you had attacked me in my private character, I could easily have forgiven the attack in consideration of your learning and in honour of letters. But when I see that my ministry, which I feel assured is supported and sanctioned by a call from God, is wounded through my side, it would be perfidy, not patience, were I here to be silent and connive. In that church I have held the office first of doctor and then of pastor, in my own right, I maintain that in undertaking these offices, I had a legitimate vocation. How faithfully and religiously I have performed them, there is no occasion for now showing at length. Perspicuity, erudition, prudence, ability, not even industry, will I now claim for myself, but that I certainly laboured with the sincerity which became me in the work of the Lord, I can, in conscience, appeal to Christ my judge and all his angels, while all good men bear clear testimony in my favour. This ministry, therefore, when it shall appear to have been of God, as it certainly shall appear after the cause has been heard, were I in silence to allow you to tear and defame, who would not condemn such silence as treachery? 
every person therefore now sees that the strongest obligations of duty obligations which i cannot evade constrain me to meet your accusations if i would not with manifest perfidy desert and betray a cause with which the lord has entrusted me for though i am for the present relieved of the charge of the church of geneva that circumstance ought not to prevent me from embracing it with paternal affection god when he gave it to me in charge having bound me to be faithful to it for ever now then when i see the worst snares laid for that church whose safety it has pleased the lord to make my highest care and grievous peril impending if not obviated who will advise me to await the issue silent and unconcerned how heartless i ask would it be to wink in idleness and as it were vacillating at the destruction of one whose life you are bound vigilantly to guard and preserve but more on this point were superfluous since you yourself relieve me of all difficulty for if neighbourhood and that not very near has weighed so much with you that while wishing to profess your love towards the genovese you hesitate not so bitterly to assail me and my fame it will undoubtedly by the law of humanity be conceded to me while desiring to consult for the public good of a city entrusted to me by a far stronger obligation than that of neighbourhood to oppose your counsels and endeavours which i cannot doubt tend to its destruction besides without paying the least regard to the genevan church though assuredly i cannot cast off that charge any more than that of my own soul supposing i were not actuated by any zeal for it still when my ministry which knowing it to be from christ i am bound if need be to maintain with my blood is assailed and falsely traduced how can it be lawful for me to bear it as if i saw it not wherefore it is easy not only for impartial readers to judge but for yourself also satellite to consider how numerous and valid the reasons are which have compelled me to engage in this contest if the name of contest should be given to a simple and dispassionate defence of my innocence against your calumnious accusations i say my innocence although i cannot plead for myself without at the same time including my colleagues with whom all my measures in that administration were so conjoined that whatever has been said against them i willingly take to myself what the feelings are which i have had towards yourself in undertaking this cause i will study to testify and prove by my mode of conducting it for i will act so that all may perceive that i have not only greatly the advantage of you in the goodness and justice of the cause in conscientious rectitude heartfelt sincerity and candour of speech but have also been considerably more successful in maintaining gentleness and moderation there will doubtless be some things which will sting or it may be speak daggers to your mind but it will be my endeavour first not to allow any harsher expression to escape me than either the injustice of the accusations with which you have previously assailed me or the necessity of the case may extort and secondly not to allow any degree of harshness which may amount to intemperance or passion or which may by its appearance of petulance give offence to ingenious minds and first if you had to do with any other person he would undoubtedly begin with the very argument which i have determined altogether to omit for without much ado he would discuss your design in writing until he should make it plain that your object was anything but what you profess it to be for were it not for the great credit you formerly acquired for candour it is somewhat suspicious that a stranger who never before had any intercourse with the genovese should now suddenly profess for them so great an affection though no previous sign of it existed while as one imbued almost from a boy with romish arts 
such arts as are now learned in the court of Rome, that forge of all craft and trickery, educated too in the very bosom of Clement, and now moreover elected a cardinal, you have many things about you which, with most men, would in this matter subject you to suspicion. Then, as to those insinuations by which you have supposed you might win your way into the minds of simple men, any one, not utterly stupid, might easily refute them. But things of this nature, though many will perhaps be disposed to believe them, I am unwilling to ascribe to you, because they seem to me unsuitable to the character of one who has been polished by all kinds of liberal learning. I will therefore, in entering into discourse with you, give you credit for having written to the Genovese with the purest intention, as becomes one of your learning, prudence, and gravity, and for having, in good faith, advised them to the course which you believed conducive to their interest and safety. But whatever may have been your intention, I am unwilling in this matter to charge you with anything invidious, when, with the bitterest and most contumulous expressions which you can employ, you distort and endeavour utterly to destroy what the Lord delivered by our hands. I am compelled, whether I will or not, to withstand you openly. For then only do pastors edify the church, when, besides leading docile souls to Christ, placidly, as with the hand, they are also armed to repel the machinations of those who strive to impede the work of God. Although your letter has many windings, its whole purport substantially is to recover the Genovese to the power of the Roman pontiff, or to what you call the faith and obedience of the church. But as, from the nature of the case, their feelings required to be softened, you preface with a long oration concerning the incomparable value of eternal life. You afterwards come nearer to the point when you show that there is nothing more pestiferous to souls than a perverse worship of God, and again, that the best rule for the due worship of God is that which is prescribed by the church, and that therefore there is no salvation for those who have violated the unity of the church unless they repent. But you next contend that separation from your fellowship is manifest revolt from the church, and then that the gospel which the Genovese received from us is nothing but a large farrago of impious dogmas. From this you infer what kind of divine judgment awaits them if they attend not to your admonitions. But, as it was of the greatest importance to your cause to throw complete discredit on our words, you labour to the utmost to fill them with sinister suspicions of the zeal which they saw us manifest for their salvation. Accordingly, you captiously allow that we had no other end in view than to gratify our avarice and ambition. Since then, your device has been to cast some stain upon us in order that the minds of your readers, being preoccupied with hatred, might give us no credit. I will, before proceeding to other matters, briefly reply to that objection. I am unwilling to speak of myself, but since you do not permit me to be altogether silent, I will say what I can consistent with modesty. Had I wished to consult my own interests, I would never have left your party. I will not, indeed, boast that there the road to preferment had been easy to me. I never desired it, and I could never bring my mind to catch at it. Although I certainly know not a few of my own age who have crept up to some eminence, among them some whom I might have equalled and others outstripped. This only I will be contented to say, it would not have been difficult for me to reach the summit of my wishes, viz. the enjoyment of literary ease with something of a free and honourable station. Therefore I have no fear that any one not possessed of shameless effrontery will object to me that out of the kingdom of the Pope I sought for any personal advantage which was not there ready to my hand. And who dare object this to Farrell? 
had it been necessary for him to live by his own industry, he had already made attainments in literature which would not have allowed him to suffer want, and he was of a more distinguished family than to require external aid. As to those of us to whom you pointed us with the finger, it seemed proper for us to reply in our own name. But since you seem to throw out indirect insinuations against all who in the present day are united with us in sustaining the same cause, I would have you understand that not one can be mentioned for whom I cannot give you a better answer than for Farrell and myself. Some of our reformers are known to you by fame. As to them, I appeal to your own conscience. Think you it was hunger which drove them away from you, and made them in despair flee to that change as a means of bettering their fortunes? But not to go over a long catalogue, this I say, that of those who first engaged in this cause, there was none who with you might not have been in better place and fortune than require on such grounds to look out for some new plan of life. But come and consider with me for a little what the honours and powers are which we have gained. All our hearers will bear us witness that we did not covet or aspire any other riches or dignities than those which fell to our lot. Since, in all our words and deeds, they not only perceived no trace of the ambition with which you charge us, but, on the contrary, saw clear evidence of our abhorring it with our whole heart, you cannot hope that by one little word their minds are to be so fascinated as to credit a futile slander in opposition to the many certain proofs with which we furnished them. And to appeal to facts rather than words, the power of the sword and other parts of civil jurisdiction, which bishops and priests, under the semblance of immunity, had wrested from the magistrate and claimed for themselves, have not we restored to the magistrate? All their usurped instruments of tyranny and ambition have not we detested and struggled to abolish? If there was any hope of rising, why did we not craftily dissemble so that those powers might have passed to us, along with the office of governing the church? and why did we make such exertion to overturn the whole of that dominion or rather butchery which they exercised upon souls without any sanction from the word of god how did we not consider that it was just so much lost to ourselves in regard to ecclesiastical revenues they are still in a great measure swallowed up by these whirlpools but if there was a hope that they would one day be deprived of them as at length they certainly must why did we not devise a way by which they might come to us but when with clear voice we denounced as a thief any bishop who out of ecclesiastical revenues appropriated more to his own use than was necessary for a frugal and sober subsistence when we protested that the church was exposed to a deadly poison so long as pastors were loaded with an affluence under which they themselves might ultimately sink when we declared it inexpedient that these revenues should fall into their possession finally when we counselled that as much should be distributed to ministers as might suffice for a frugality befitting their order not superbound for luxury and that the rest should be dispensed according to the practice of the ancient church when we showed that men of weight ought to be elected to manage these revenues under an obligation to account annually to the church and the magistracy was this to entrap any of these for ourselves or was it not rather voluntarily to shake ourselves free of them all these things indeed demonstrate not what we are, but what we wished to be. But if these things are so plainly and generally known, that not one iota can be denied, 
with what face can you proceed to upbraid us with aspiring to extraordinary wealth and power and this especially in the presence of men to whom none of those things are unknown the monstrous lies which persons of your order spread against us among their own followers we are not surprised at for no man is present who can either reprimand or venture to refute them but where men have been eye-witnesses of all the things which we have above mentioned to try to persuade them of the contrary is the part of a man of little discretion and strongly derogates from satellite's reputation for learning prudence and gravity but if you think that our intention must be judged by the result it will be found that the only thing we aimed at was that the kingdom of christ might be promoted by our poverty and insignificance so far are we from having abused his sacred name to purposes of ambition i pass in silence many other invectives which you thunder out against us open-mouthed as it is said you call us crafty men enemies of christian unity and peace innovators on things ancient and well established seditious alike pestiferous to souls and destructive both publicly and privately to society at large had you wished to escape rebuke you either ought not for the purpose of exciting prejudice to have attributed to us a magniloquent tongue or you ought to have kept your own magniloquence considerably more under check i am unwilling however to dwell on each of these points only i would have you to consider how unbecoming not to say illiberal it is thus in many words to accuse the innocent of things which by one word can be instantly refuted although to inflict injury on man is a small matter when compared with the indignity of that contumely which when you come to the question you offer to christ and his word when the genovese instructed by our preaching escaped from the gulf of error in which they were immersed and betook themselves to a purer teaching of the gospel you call it defection from the truth of god when they threw off the tyranny of the roman pontiff in order that they might establish among themselves a better form of church you call it a desertion from the church come then let us discuss both points in their order as to your preface which in proclaiming the excellence of eternal blessedness occupies about a third of your letter it cannot be necessary for me to dwell long in reply for although commendation of the future and eternal life is a theme which deserves to be sounded in our ears by day and by night to be constantly kept in remembrance and made the subject of ceaseless meditation yet i know not for what reason you have so spun out your discourse upon it here unless it were to recommend yourself by giving some indication of religious feeling but whether in order to remove all doubt concerning yourself you wished to testify that a life of glory seriously occupies your thoughts or whether you suppose that those to whom you wrote required to be excited and spurred on by a long commendation of it for i am unwilling to divine what your intention may have been it is not very sound theology to confine a man's thoughts so much to himself and not to set before him as the prime motive of his existence zeal to illustrate the glory of god for we are born first of all for god and not for ourselves as all things flowed from him and subsist in him so says paul romans eleven thirty six they ought to be referred to him i acknowledge indeed that the lord the better to recommend the glory of his name to men has tempered zeal for the promotion and extension of it by uniting it indissolubly with our salvation but since he has taught that this zeal ought to exceed all thought and care for our own good and advantage and since natural equity also teaches that god does not receive what is his own unless he is preferred to all things it certainly is the part of a christian man to ascend higher than merely to seek and secure the salvation of his own soul i am persuaded therefore that there is no man imbued with true piety 
who will not consider as insipid that long and laboured exhortation to zeal for heavenly life a zeal which keeps a man entirely devoted to himself and does not even by one expression arouse him to sanctify the name of god but i readily agree with you that after this sanctification we ought not to propose to ourselves any other object in life than to hasten towards that high calling for god has set it before us as the constant aim of all our thoughts and words and actions and indeed there is nothing in which man excels the lower animals unless it be his spiritual communion with god in the hope of a blessed eternity and generally all we aim at in our discourses is to arouse men to meditate upon it and aspire to it i have also no difficulty in conceding to you that there is nothing more perilous to our salvation than a preposterous and perverse worship of god the primary rudiments by which we are wont to train to piety those whom we wish to gain as disciples to christ are these viz not to frame any new worship of god for themselves at random and after their own pleasure but to know that the only legitimate worship is that which he himself approved from the beginning for we maintain what the sacred oracle declared that obedience is more excellent than any sacrifice one samuel fifteen twenty two in short we train them by every means to be contented with the one rule of worship which they have received from his mouth and bid adieu to all fictitious worship therefore sadelet when you uttered this voluntary confession you laid the foundation of my defence for if you admit it to be a fearful destruction to the soul when by false opinions divine truth is turned into a lie it now only remains for us to inquire which of the two parties retains that worship of god which is alone legitimate in order that you may claim it for your party you must assume that the most certain rule of worship is that which is prescribed by the church although as if we here opposed you you bring the matter under consideration in the manner which is usually observed in regard to doubtful questions but sadelet as i see you toiling in vain i will relieve you from all trouble on this head you are mistaken in supposing that we desire to lead away the people from that method of worshipping god which the catholic church always observed you either labour under a delusion as to the term church or at least knowingly and willingly give it a gloss i will immediately show the latter to be the case though it may also be that you are somewhat in error first in defining the term you admit what would have helped you in no small degree to that right understanding of it when you describe it as that which in all parts as well as at the present time in every region of the earth being united and consenting in christ has been always and everywhere directed by the one spirit of christ what comes of the word of the lord that clearest of all marks and which the lord himself in pointing out the church so often recommends to us for seeing how dangerous it would be to boast of the spirit without the word he declared that the church is indeed governed by the holy spirit but in order that the government might not be vague and unstable he annexed it to the word for this reason christ exclaims that those who are of god hear the word of god that his sheep are those who recognize his voice as that of their shepherd and any other voice as that of a stranger john ten twenty seven for this reason the spirit by the mouth of paul declares ephesians two twenty that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets also that the church is made holy to the lord by the washing of water in the word of life the same thing is declared still more clearly by the mouth of peter when he teaches that people are regenerated to god by that incorruptible seed one peter one twenty three in short 
why is the preaching of the gospel so often styled the kingdom of god but because it is the scepter by which the heavenly king rules his people nor will you find this in the apostolical writings only but whenever the prophets foretell the renewal of the church or its extension over the whole globe they always assign the first place to the word for they tell that from jerusalem will issue forth living waters which being divided into four rivers will inundate the whole earth zechariah fourteen eight and what these living waters are they themselves explain when they say that the law will come forth from zion and the word of the lord from jerusalem isaiah two three well then does chrysostom admonish us to reject all who under the pretence of the spirit lead us away from the simple doctrine of the gospel the spirit having been promised not to reveal a new doctrine but to impress the truth of the gospel on our minds and we in fact experience in the present day how necessary that admonition was we are assailed by two sects which seem to differ most widely from each other for what similitude is there in appearance between the pope and the anabaptists and yet that you may see that satan never transforms himself so cunningly as not in some measure to betray himself the principal weapon with which they both assail us is the same for when they boast extravagantly of the spirit the tendency certainly is to sink and bury the word of god that they may make room for their own falsehoods and you satellite by stumbling on the very threshold have paid the penalty of that affront which you offered to the holy spirit when you separated him from the word for as if those who seek the way of god were standing where two ways meet and destitute of any certain sign you are forced to introduce them as hesitating whether it be more expedient to follow the authority of the church or to listen to those whom you call the inventors of new dogmas had you known or been unwilling to disguise the fact that the spirit goes before the church to enlighten her in understanding the word while the word itself is like the lydian stone by which she tests all doctrines would you have taken refuge in that most perplexing and thorny question learn then by your own experience that it is no less unreasonable to boast of the spirit without the word than it would be absurd to bring forward the word itself without the spirit now if you can bear to receive a truer definition of the church than your own say in future that it is the society of all the saints a society which spread over the whole world and existing in all ages yet bound together by the one doctrine and the one spirit of christ cultivates and observes unity of faith and brotherly concord with this church we deny that we have any disagreement nay rather as we revere her as our mother so we desire to remain in her bosom but here you bring a charge against us for you teach that all which has been approved for fifteen hundred years or more by the uniform consent of the faithful is by our headstrong rashness torn up and destroyed here i will not require you to deal truly and candidly by us though this should be spontaneously offered by a philosopher not to say a christian i will only ask you not to stoop to an illiberal indulgence in calumny which, even though we be silent, must be extremely injurious to your reputation with grave and honest men. You know, Sadelet, and if you venture to deny, I will make it palpable to all that you knew, yet cunningly and craftily disguise the fact, not only that our agreement with antiquity is far closer than yours, but that all we have attempted has been to renew that ancient form of the church, which at first sullied and distorted by illiterate men of indifferent character, was afterwards flagitiously mangled and almost destroyed by the Roman pontiff and his faction. I will not press you so closely as to call you back to that form which the apostles instituted, though in it, 
we have the only model of a true church, and whosoever deviates from it, in the smallest degree, is in error. But to indulge you so far, place, I pray, before your eyes, that ancient form of the church, which, as their writings prove it, to have been in the age of Chrysostom and Basil among the Greeks, and of Cyprian, Ambrose, and Augustine among the Latins. After so doing, contemplate the ruins of that church, as now surviving among yourselves. Assuredly, the difference will appear as great as that which the prophets describe between the famous church which flourished under David and Solomon, and that which under Zedekiah and Jehoiakim had lapsed into every kind of superstition and utterly vitiated the purity of divine worship. Will you here give the name of an enemy of antiquity to him who, zealous for ancient piety and holiness, and dissatisfied with the state of matters as existing in a dissolute and depraved church, attempts to ameliorate its condition and restore it to pristine splendor? Since there are three things on which the safety of the church is founded, viz. doctrine, discipline, and the sacraments, and to these a fourth is added, viz. ceremonies by which to exercise the people in offices of piety, in order that we may be most sparing of the honor of your church, by which of these would you have us to judge her? The truth of prophetical and evangelical doctrine, on which the church ought to be founded, has not only in a great measure perished in your church, but is violently driven away by fire and sword. Will you obtrude upon me for the church, a body which furiously persecutes everything sanctioned by our religion, both as delivered by the oracles of God, and embodied in the writings of holy fathers, and approved by ancient councils? Where, pray, exist among you any vestiges of that true and holy discipline which the ancient bishops exercised in the church? Have you not scorned all their institutions? Have you not trampled all the canons underfoot? Then your nefarious profanation of the sacraments I cannot think of without the uttermost horror. Of ceremonies, indeed, you have more than enough, but for the most part so childish in their import, and vitiated by innumerable forms of superstition, as to be utterly unavailing for the preservation of the church. None of these things, you must be aware, is exaggerated by me in a captious spirit. They all appear so openly, that they may be pointed out with the finger, wherever there are eyes to behold them. Now, if you please, test us in the same way. You will assuredly fall far short of making good the charges which you have brought against us. In the sacraments, all we have attempted is to restore the native purity from which they had degenerated and so enable them to resume their dignity ceremonies we have in a great measure abolished but we were compelled to do so partly because by their multitude they had degenerated into a kind of judaism partly because they had filled the minds of the people with superstition and could not possibly remain without doing the greatest injury to the piety which it was their office to promote still we have retained those which seemed sufficient for the circumstances of the times that our discipline is not such as the ancient church professed we do not deny but with what fairness is a charge of subverting discipline brought against us by those who themselves have utterly abolished it and in our attempts to reinstate it in its rights have hitherto opposed us as to our doctrine we hesitate not to appeal to the ancient church and since for the sake of example you have touched on certain heads as to which you thought you had some ground for accusing us I will briefly show how unfairly and falsely you allege that these are things which have been devised by us against the opinion of the church. Before descending to particulars, however, I have already cautioned you, and would have you again and again consider with what reason you can charge it upon our people as a fault that they have studied to explain the scriptures. 
for you are aware that by this study they have thrown such light on the word of god that in this respect even envy herself is ashamed to defraud them of all praise you are just as uncandid when you aver that we have seduced the people by thorny and subtle questions and so entice them by that philosophy of which paul bids christians beware what do you remember what kind of time it was when our reformers appeared and what kind of doctrine candidates for the ministry learned in the schools you yourself know that it was mere sophistry and sophistry so twisted involved tortuous and puzzling that scholastic theology might well be described as a species of secret magic the denser the darkness in which any one shrouded a subject the more he puzzled himself and others with preposterous riddles the greater his fame for acumen and learning and when those who had been formed in that forge wished to carry the fruit of their learning to the people with what skill i ask did they edify the church not to go over every point what sermons in europe then exhibited that simplicity with which paul wishes a christian people to be always occupied nay what one sermon was there from which old wives might not carry off more whimsies than they could devise at their own fireside in a month for as sermons were then usually divided the first half was devoted to those misty questions of the schools which might astonish the rude populace while the second contained sweet stories or not unamusing speculations by which the hearers might be kept on the alert only a few expressions were thrown in from the word of god that by their majesty they might procure credit for these frivolities but as soon as our reformers raised the standard all these absurdities in one moment disappeared from amongst us your preachers again partly profited by our books and partly compelled by shame and the general murmur conformed to our example though they still with open throat exhale the old absurdity hence any one who compares our method of procedure with the old method or with that which is still in repute among you will perceive that you have done us no small injustice but had you continued your quotation from paul a little farther any boy would easily have perceived that the charge which you bring against us is undoubtedly applicable to yourselves for paul there interprets vain philosophy colossians two eight to mean that which preys upon pious souls by means of the constitutions of men and the elements of this world and by these you have ruined the church even you yourself afterwards acquit us by your own testimony, for among those of our doctrines which you have thought proper to assail, you do not adduce one, the knowledge of which is not necessary for edification of the church. You in the first place touch upon justification by faith, the first and keenest subject of controversy between us. Is this a knotty and useless question? Wherever the knowledge of it is taken away, the glory of Christ is extinguished, religion abolished, the church destroyed, and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. That doctrine, then, though of the highest moment, we maintain that you have nefariously effaced from the memory of men. Our books are filled with convincing proofs of this fact, and the gross ignorance of this doctrine, which even still continues in all your churches, declares that our complaint is by no means ill-founded but you very maliciously stir up prejudice against us alleging that by attributing everything to faith we leave no room for works i will not now enter upon a full discussion which would require a large volume but if you would look into the catechism which i myself drew up for the genovese when i held the office of pastor among them three words would silence you here however i will briefly explain to you how we speak on this subject 
first we bid a man begin by examining himself and this not in a superficial and perfunctory manner but to sift his conscience before the tribunal of god and when sufficiently convinced of his iniquity to reflect on the strictness of the sentence pronounced upon all sinners thus confounded and amazed at his misery he is prostrated and humbled before god and casting away all self-confidence groans as if given up to a final perdition then we show that the only haven of safety is in the mercy of god as manifested in christ in whom every part of our salvation is complete as all mankind are in the sight of god lost sinners we hold that christ is their only righteousness since by his obedience he has wiped off our transgressions by his sacrifice appeased the divine anger by his blood washed away our stains by his cross borne our curse and by his death made satisfaction for us we maintain that in this way man is reconciled in christ to god the father by no merit of his own by no value of works but by gratuitous mercy when we embrace christ by faith and come as it were into communion with him this we term after the manner of scripture the righteousness of faith what have you here satellite to bite or carp at is it that we leave no room for works assuredly we do deny that in justifying a man they are worth one single straw for scripture everywhere cries aloud that all are lost and every man's own conscience bitterly accuses him the same scripture teaches that no man is left but in the mere goodness of god by which sin is pardoned and righteousness imputed to us it declares both to be gratuitous and finally concludes that a man is justified without works romans four seven but what notion you ask does the very term righteousness suggest to us if respect is not paid to good works i answer if you would attend to the true meaning of the term justifying in scripture you would have no difficulty for it does not refer to a man's own righteousness but to the mercy of god which contrary to the sinner's deserts accepts of a righteousness for him and that by not imputing his unrighteousness our righteousness i say is that which is described by paul two corinthians five nineteen that god hath reconciled us to himself in jesus christ the mode is afterwards subjoined by not imputing sin he demonstrates that it is by faith only we become partakers of that blessing when he says that the ministry of reconciliation is contained in the gospel but faith you say is a general term and has a larger signification i answer that paul whenever he attributes to it the power of justifying at the same time restricts it to a gratuitous promise of the divine favour and keeps it far removed from all respect to works hence his familiar inference if by faith then not by works on the other hand if by works then not by faith but it seems injury is done to christ if under the pretence of his grace good works are repudiated he having come to prepare a people acceptable to god zealous of good works while to the same effect are many similar passages which prove that christ came in order that we doing good works might through him be accepted by god this calumny which our opponents have ever in their mouths viz that we take away the desire of well-doing from the christian life by recommending gratuitous righteousness is too frivolous to give us much concern we deny that good works have any share in justification but we claim full authority for them in the lives of the righteous for if he who has obtained justification possesses christ and at the same time christ never is where his spirit is not it is obvious that gratuitous righteousness is necessarily connected with regeneration therefore if you would duly understand how inseparable faith and works are 
look to Christ, who, as the Apostle teaches, 1 Corinthians 1.30, has been given to us for justification and for sanctification. Wherever, therefore, that righteousness of faith, which we maintain to be gratuitous, is, there too Christ is, and where Christ is, there too is the spirit of holiness who regenerates the soul to newness of life. On the contrary, where zeal for integrity and holiness is not in vigour, there neither is the Spirit of Christ nor Christ himself, and wherever Christ is not, there is no righteousness. Nay, there is no faith, for faith cannot apprehend Christ for righteousness without the Spirit of sanctification. Since, therefore, according to us, Christ regenerates to a blessed life those whom he justifies, and after rescuing them from the dominion of sin, hands them over to the dominion of righteousness, transforms them into the image of God, and so trains them by his Spirit into obedience to his will. There is no ground to complain that by our doctrine lust is left with loosened reins. The passages which you adduce have not a meaning at variance with our doctrine but if you will pervert them in assailing gratuitous justification see how unskilfully you argue paul elsewhere says ephesians one four that we were chosen in christ before the creation of the world to be holy and unblameable in the sight of god through love who will venture thence to infer either that election is not gratuitous or that our love is its cause nay rather as the end of gratuitous election so also that of gratuitous justification is that we may lead pure and unpolluted lives before God. For the saying of Paul is true, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, we have not been called to impurity but to holiness. This meanwhile we constantly maintain that man is not only justified freely once for all without any merit of works, but that on this gratuitous justification the salvation of man perpetually depends. Nor is it possible that any work of man can be accepted by God unless it be gratuitously approved. Wherefore, I was amazed when I read your assertion that love is the first and chief cause of our salvation. O oh, Satellite, who could ever have expected such a saying from you? Undoubtedly, the very blind, while in darkness, feel the mercy of God too surely to dare to claim for their love the first cause of their salvation, while those who have merely one spark of divine light feel that their salvation consists in nothing else than their being adopted by God for eternal salvation is the inheritance of the heavenly father and has been prepared solely for his children moreover who can assign any other cause of our adoption than that which is uniformly announced in scripture viz that we did not first love him but were spontaneously received by him into favour and affection your ignorance of this doctrine leads you on to the error of teaching that sins are expiated by penances and satisfactions where then will be that one expiatory victim from which if we depart there remains as scripture testifies no more sacrifice for sin search through all the divine oracles which we possess if the blood of christ alone is uniformly set forth as purchasing satisfaction reconciliation and ablution how dare you presume to transfer so great an honour to your works nor have you any ground for ascribing this blasphemy to the church of god the ancient church i admit had its satisfactions not those however by which sinners might atone to god and ransom themselves from guilt but by which they might prove that the repentance which they professed was not feigned and efface the remembrance of that scandal which their sin had occasioned for satisfactions were not regularly prescribed to all and sundry but to those only who had fallen into some heinous wickedness end of john calvin's reply to the letter of cardinal Sadolet, part one by John Calvin.